morning and welcome to the Christian Bible Church of the Philippines English service for this morning. It's a pleasure to have each other to worship beside and along with, despite of whatever week we have come from. My name is Pastor Nathan, and I'm privileged to deliver the word of the Lord for you this morning. We're still on our series called The Pilgrim's Life. It's on the book of First Peter. And last week, Pastor Jared talked to us about Christians being free servants. He also imparted to us that the key truth of Peter was that submission is a servant's true measure of greatness. Submission is a true servant's measure of greatness. And so before we go any further, let me try to establish a framework for us to remember for that will help us for today. Over the past chapter, we've been talking about identities and functions. First Peter 2, 9 to 12 says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is our identity. And because of who we are, we have certain functions. We are called to function as proclaimers of the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, identities and functions. And then he moves on. He said, beloved, another identity, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, identities again, to function by abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, but keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a pattern of who we are, and because of who we are, this is what we are called to do. Identities and functions, identities and functions. Generally, we are proclaimers of God's excellencies because he is the one who has employed us. He is the one we serve. He is our master. So we are supposed to be ambassadors of who our master is. So proclaimers of God's excellencies. How? What? It is through our conduct, throughout the time of our exile, throughout the time of being aliens here, we proclaim the king we serve, the master we belong to. And so today, Paul introduces to us a different outline. An addition to the outline of identity and function. In every function, it takes on certain forms. In chapter 2, verse 13, we function as proclaimers of God's glory as constituents. In chapter 2, verse 17, we function as proclaimers of God's glory as spiritual family members. And then in 2.17, as citizens of lands, as 2.18, as servants who serve masters, and today, We find ourselves in the form of wives and husbands, and yet we are still functioning according to our identity as God's people. How can we be God's people called to proclaim his glory, but now as husbands and wives? And so if you can infer, all of Christianity is a full-time job. There is no full-time worker. Everyone is a full-time worker. So, if all of us are God's people, all of us are called to function as God's proclaimers. 
Some are called to function in the form of a pastor. Some are called to function in the form of a servant. Some are called to function in the form of a citizen. Some are called to function in the form of a slave. Some are called to function in the form of a driver. Some are called to function in that way in the form of a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister. In every form, you are to function according to who you are. You are God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, called to proclaim his excellencies through whatever role and responsibility you have. It's a full-time job. But today we'll focus on the full-time jobs of marital roles, a God-conscious marriage. You may open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. So let's read this passage together. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So today we'll look at three things. A wife's conduct, a wife's beauty, and a husband's honor. It's pretty straightforward, actually. In these first few verses, we see Peter focusing on a certain form of function of the wife. You see, Peter's original audience was a first century of believers, and many of them were wives who believed in Jesus, but their husbands were disobedient to Jesus. So you can imagine those wives living under the household of such leadership, asking their pastors and their leaders, Pastor, what should I do? Should I just divorce this guy? He's crazy. According to Jesus' standards, nothing matches. Should I leave him? Disobey him, teach him the law, preach to him. Should I stop obeying this man? Should I call curses on this man? Peter instructs them in a certain way that certainly surprises us. He says, no, he did not tell them to teach their husbands about Jesus. He did not tell them to talk to their husbands about what the pastor preached at the 9 a.m. service. He did not tell them to nag them about leading family devotions. He did not tell them to attend church or to join a discipleship group. He did not tell them to seek counseling because they're disobedient. Peter instead says, in God's wisdom, watch your own conduct. Wives, watch your own conduct. What? He's a disobedient person. Why should I watch my conduct? He should watch his conduct. I'm obeying Christ. 
But you see, the conduct of a wife seems to be the evangelistic tool that Peter thought to be the most effective inside of a marriage to proclaim God's excellencies. See, Peter is saying it is more about your conduct as a wife before it is about your speech. It is more about your actions speaking louder than your words. It is more about how you walk rather than how you talk. So look at your seatmate. Tell them, walk the talk. Walk the talk. When I was growing up in church, nobody taught me this, to walk the talk. Everybody talked the talk. We were taught evangelistic tools of Evangicube, that the bracelets with five dollars, four spiritual laws. We were always told to share our faith according to our lips and our mouths and our tongue. And so, you would imagine the, the, the people who grew up in church who believed in Jesus, who followed Jesus, what would they do to share their faith to proclaim God's excellencies? The main tool that they used was their mouth. So even when they got married, or where they're at work, or where they're husbands or servants or drivers, all they do is to talk the talk. But Peter here is emphasizing what the church seems to have de-emphasized especially for our generation today. He says that to truly win over someone who is disobedient against God, first and foremost, especially as wives who have husbands 24-7 watching you, rubbing shoulders with you, dealing with you, the sharpest evangelistic tool to share and proclaim God's excellencies is the way you walk, not how much you talk. Because your husbands know the word but do not obey the word. Can we show the slide? It says, it doesn't say that the husbands do not know God. It says that these husbands do not obey the word. And so it's interesting how Peter shifts the tone. Okay, if words don't work, let's use another sense. Let's use their eyes. Be subject to your own husband so that if some do not obey the word, what they hear, they may be won without a word. Through what? By the conduct of their wives, through what they see in your life. So now Peter's changing the sense of entry. Instead of entering through their ears, you enter through their perceptions. Can they perceive a life of godliness, a wife of godliness that exudes the excellency of a God, even if he was deaf or maybe spiritually deaf? If you could not say a word for the rest of your life as a wife, would your husband tell, can your husband tell that you are serving more than yourself, but a God 
enter through the eyes. Watch your conduct. And so how? What kind of conduct is he asking of us? He's been asking all, all Jews, all believers, to watch their conduct. In chapter 2, verse 12, it's the same verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Their verbal accusations are squashed. Squashed. The original language almost says they are called to shut up because of what they see. Your conduct is undeniable. Even though they want to speak trash against you, they can't because your whole life is so pure. There's nothing to accuse you of. There's nothing to say about you. Even though they want to say something, they cannot because what they see is contrary to what they want to say about you. They cannot disqualify what they see. And so it's very sad because nowadays I've heard of many wives who are believers and contrary to what Peter is teaching, the moment they became believers, their husbands couldn't find them at home. They're always at church. When, 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 when they became Christians, I could no longer have dinner with my wife. I no longer see my kids. They're always with their new friends. I don't even know their friends. I don't want that God. That God took away my wife from me. My kids. I see them so rarely. They're always at church. Now you step back. You're the Christian friend. And then you're thinking, Bakit? Uh, why? Is it bad to bring my family to church? He's not going to church. Should I leave them at home? What, what good will my husband do to my kids when they're at home? The other brothers in the church are so much better influenced to my kids, to my son. But you see, wives, the first and primary form that God calls you to function in about your identity is your function and form as a wife. This is the hat that no one else can wear. No one else can be the wife of your husband. Someone else can be a church member. And so if your husband cannot see God in the lives of their wives, and he doesn't go to church, where else do you think will he meet God if not at home? So watch your conduct. It doesn't mean the way you speak only. It doesn't mean the way you talk to him only. It also means the way you set your time, the way you choose your energies, where you put your attention. It must be for godly purposes. Prepare your minds for action. Be fully engaged in the work of the Lord. And then there are wives who, when they became Christians, started to become preachers of the home. Huh? 
Some wives are laughing. Honey, honey. The pastor said, husbands should be the spiritual leaders. What about you? So the pastor, or the, so, the, so the father or the husband already hates the pastor even if he has never met the pastor. Pastor, I don't want to go to that church. He's already talking about me before I even meet him. What kind of God is that? Doesn't even know, my, understand me. He's already telling me what to do. Good intentions, wives. Bad execution. Very bad execution. Because once you became a Christian, you should understand the limits of your duties better. It doesn't make you bigger than your husband just because you knew Jesus. Peter is saying, because you know Jesus, you are now free. Free servants. Free from obligations. Free to function according to what God's design is calling you to function. And what is this function? Submission. Who created marital submission? Is it not God? And so let me get back to our verse. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. This is so contrary to every wife, especially the wife who is a believer who has a non-obedient husband. Why? Because all you want to do is to get him to obey. Come on. Come on. And so what does submission do? I can't, sp- can't spank him. I can't correct him when he's being lazy. I can't, I can't lead my children if my husband's not leading. I can't really. It feels so counterintuitive. You want to do something because you want to feel more useful than a submissive servant. But allow me to tell you what submission is not. Because a lot of husbands have used this verse against their Christian wives. Oh, diba? Salve sa First Peter, diba Christian ka? You're a Christian, right? First Peter said, submit to me. So shut up. So it has been used in the wrong way also. What Peter is not saying about submission is that submission is not absolute obedience. It's very different. As we must obey God and not men. It says this in Acts 5.29. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. These were the disciples, including Peter. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, the one who wrote our book, and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So it doesn't say that everything that your husband says must be obeyed. That is not what submission is saying. You are not a doormat in the household. Also, it is not saying that we endure suffering for the sake of enduring suffering because suffering must be framed in the sake, for the sake of doing good. Verse 12 says, 
that they may see your good deeds. Verse 15 says, by doing good, you put to silence foolish people. Verse 20, when you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But when you just suffer because you don't want to do anything, it's not submission. It's just passivity. You're just subjecting yourself under a rulership that should have not been submitted to. You cannot say that you are submitting just by enduring the maltreatment of your husband. It is not Christian submission. Would it do your husband good by submitting to his sins and his laziness? Very good. Okay, okay. You want to not do your job? Okay, okay. I'm not going to nag you. That is not submission. Or your husband is abusive emotionally, physically, mentally abusive, and you don't want to correct him? That is not submission. That is passivity, my friends. It is not something that God is asking of us when he says, submit to your husbands. It is not saying, tolerate the abuse because by that conduct, your husband will be saved. Do you think tolerating abuse will stop the abusing? Or your employers are abusing you, withholding your rights, withholding your salary. Oh, servant, submit to your masters. That's not submission either. It's not doing any good for your master. Or your government is not performing up to par, and then you say, we must submit. We must honor the emperor. This is very different. Submission is not passivity. The suffering we endure must be for the sake of doing good. It must be the consequence of doing good, not passivity. So one misconception I want us to correct today is that if our suffering is caused by our own refusal to do what God would want, this is no longer godly suffering. This is a sin of omission. There are many wives also struggling with this. They're either doing nothing or doing everything to lead the family. If I'm not the leadership, then bahala siya, submission. Oh, sige, kabala. Bahala, sige Lord, bahala na. It's also a little bit lazy. It's not very respectful. It's not very honorable conduct either. You're leaving him to dry. So what is Submission. We talked about this in our Master's Design series before. But submission is actually fulfilling your duties fully. For the good of your husband. For the godliness of your husband. And so, I wouldn't get into specifics with this because every wife and every husband would look different. But part of submission clearly says respectful and pure conduct. Purity here means of sin. Your conduct must be sinless. And then your manner must be respectful. There are people or wives who submit but are very disrespectful. Sige, sabi ni Lord eh. Sabi ni, sabi ni Pastor Nathan kanina umagaw sa submit ako. Sige, ikaw bahala mamaya. Sige. Very disrespectful. This is very, very useful, useless. So the manner of how you submit also matters. But also I want us to see that submission is ultimately the true measure of a servant's greatness. 
It's not a measure of how worthy your husband is. Submission is how mature you are in your heart, how free you are as a servant. Because remember, our verse says likewise. And what is, it, is Peter liking us to? He is liking, likening us to Christ, who also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. What were his steps? In his steps, he committed no sin. His mouth was not deceitful. He was reviled, and then he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten those who abused him, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does this mean? Jesus submitted himself to obedience. He wasn't submitting himself to results. Jesus himself submitted to obedience, not to results. What does that mean? God had ordained Jesus to go through the, the command of suffering and dying on the cross. The Son of Man had to suffer in the hands of man. Counterintuitively, Jesus said, this cup does not seem right, and yet let your will be done. This is the example we have as wives. Submission does not sit right with me. It's like this obedient person, I submit. I still fulfill my duties. I still stay respectful. I still spend time with him. I still involve him in the decisions. I still pray for him. Even though he's so disrespectful, he's so irreverent, he's so irresponsible, I still submit. Isn't that what Jesus was asking also? It's like, really? This is where we will go? This is your design, master? And so submission is ultimately a measure of trust. Do you trust in the master's design more than what feels right? What feels productive? That's what I feel. What's logical? Sampalin mo, pagbastos, right? But Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Isa pa, aalis na kami ng anak mo. Bakit? Do you trust in the master's design that submission will lead to good? Because Jesus himself trusted that me dying on the cross would actually achieve salvation for all. So as a wife, the ultimate question is, do you trust the design of God to be, for wives to submit that it will lead to submission, that it will lead to salvation, that it will lead to Christian evangelism and Christ-like witness? Do you trust So fully entrusting ourselves to God means we trust that His methods will yield His results according to His time. We cannot try to say, I trust God, but we do it in our own way and hope that we achieve God's results. Obedience says, I will obey your method, I will trust in your results, and I will wait for your time so I can submit because I trust in the design even though it seems to not be, doesn't feel good. 
Submission is a true measure of greatness and freedom. Submission to husbands is a measure of a wife's trust in God. It's not the trust in your husband. It's ultimately, do you trust the one who designed submission in the first place? It takes a wife that is conscious of God, mindful of God, trusting of God to make a submissive wife. Trust leads to submission. Not in your husband, in God. So don't try to just will yourself to submit. No. It's like, Lord, I trust in you. Lord, even though this is so slow, this feels so unproductive, you say in your word, this will work, so I will trust in you. There's a mindfulness of God. There's a consciousness of a spiritual reality. It's not an act of the will. It's a surrendering of yourself for the functioning of proclaiming the excellencies of the master's design. Move on to number two, a wife's beauty. Peter proceeds to talk to the wives. Because at that time, according to my study, Usudaw ang blonde na wigs. Di ko alam kung bat maganda yun sa time nila, no? But the women were wearing blonde wigs as beauty ornaments. So a lot of the women were following the trends of society. This is what looks pretty. So Peter moves them a little bit further than just wanting to be beautiful. He says, in other versions, it says, do not let your adorning be only external. So go beyond external beauty, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be deeper, even more so the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Last year, I got married. And on the wedding day, you will realize that the wedding day of the, um, the bride is much longer than the wedding day of the groom. I was still rolling in my bed, and my wife was already having her hair treated and her makeup done at 6 a.m. I got up for breakfast at around 10 a.m., and she was already still doing her hair and still doing her makeup. This is the beauty regimen of women. We take four hours a day to get ready for a single event. Maybe not on Sundays, maybe one hour na lang on Sundays. But for the guy, it's just a few strokes of the comb. And Peter was saying, yes, I know you have concerns for your external beauty. That is all right and good. But do not stay there. If your beauty regimen is one and a half hour, all the more so, let your inner beauty regimen be even more meaningful. Be, spend even more time on beautifying your inner self. Pluck away at the things that should not be growing where they should not be growing. Color the things that are dull and have lost luster in life. 
cut what needs to be cut, trim what needs to be trimmed, treat what needs to be treated, not just with your body, but with your heart. You have no hair, you're, you're so pretty, you're flawless outside. But how's your inner person? It's just a garden of weeds. When I was in uh, college, well, in, when I was in high school, our, our school was too small, so there was no pretty ladies that much. When I got to college, I was like, whoa. I'm a, I'm a small fish in a big pond. There's so many pretty ladies. But most of them, once you talk to them, their speech is so vile. They talk even more disgusting than my other guy friends. They say bad words. Then they smoke. They do drugs. But they're so pretty outside. If you look at them, Wow. But if you talk to them, <laughs> Peter is saying, let's not be like that. Because our identity is God's priesthood. We represent God to men and we represent God, man to God. We are ambassadors. If God is only a God of beauty, but he's not a God to be adored, his character is disappointing, then maybe we can be like that. But if indeed our God is more beautiful than the eyes can see, his, his character is more loving than his lovely appearance, then our wives must be like that also as well. As pilgrim ambassadors, are you merely showing the physical beauty of God, but not the spiritual beauty, the inner beauty, the inner quietness? of your God. So again, it takes more than a wife to do this. It takes a God-conscious wife to do this. To be gentle and quiet, why would you do that? Only a person who is conscious of God's sight who is hoping in God, set your hope fully on God, would do this. Because this extra effort. If makeup takes one hour, spiritual disciplines, repentance, confession, sitting in the presence of God, plucking away your heart sins and your heart weeds, takes years and years and years of beauty routines. I pray that all the wives here will be even more beautiful when you talk to them than what you see. Because a lot of pretty faces in our church, but I hope there's even more beautiful hearts here. Remember that the Lord does not see as the man sees, but the Lord looks on the heart. Very quickly, I want to tell the single women here if you adorn yourself only externally, you will be attracting the guys who only look externally. And once you get older, if you get ugly, they will look for someone prettier. But the beauty of the inner person is imperishable. 
it grows and grows. And the more you age, even though the outward person is wasting away, you are becoming more beautiful as a woman. So for the single women, seek to cultivate an inner beauty. Then the men who seek men of inner beauty will find you. Technical difficulties. Precious in God's eyes are women whose beauty flows from their inner being. Let's move on to the last. A husband's honor. This will be very quick as it's very straightforward. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter looked at the wives Peter talked about Christ and then he looked at the wives and then Peter looked at the husbands and then he says, Kayorin, be like Christ. How do husbands be like Christ? He says, understand your wives, showing honor to them as the physically weaker vessel. So many women have been offended by this verse. I'm not weaker, but Peter here was talking about physically. You are physically weaker. When I first got married, I used to be not understanding because my wife would constantly tell me, Babe, put it on the shelf. I was, I was already on my business. I was checking my phone, doing my work. Every night she would tell me to put this pan up in the shelf. I did not understand why she wanted to bother me that much. But what I didn't realize was she was five flat. I forgot. I forgot she could not reach the top shelf and I did not buy a two-step ladder for our kitchen. So I lacked understanding and I did not honor her according to the physical limits that God had set for her. She needed six inches that God did not provide. From a theologian's uh, commentary, by knowing her well, a husband is able to demonstrate his love for her far more effectively. When a husband has this understanding, God directs him to use it in that he is to dwell with his wife with understanding. He is supposed to take his understanding and apply it in the daily life with his wife. This is where many men have trouble following through. They may have understanding about their wives, but they don't use it as they dwell with them. Okay, a lot of words, a lot of discussions. Let me give you an example as I try to portray what this truth is because I was trying to understand this when I was trying to prepare for this day. Early on in our marriage, I had a vision for what marriage would look like because I got married last November. I imagined picking up her, uh, my wife from work, going home, setting up a beautiful dining table, Cooking together, romantically laughing. I have pictures. And then talking about life, having beautiful conversations, having a sip of wine after dinner. Fast forward to reality. My wife's a doctor. And she spends 36 hours straight in the hospital. So, so sometimes I would pick her up. And her house is 10 minutes away from the hospital. Before I arrive home, she's already 
her teeth is out. She's so ugly. She hasn't fixed her hair. He's already sleeping in the car. <sighs> so image destroyed. So isipin mo, okay lang, gigising naman yan. Di ba? Kaya pa, kaya pa. Kaya pa tong date na to. Then she goes home, she flops her shoes, undress, goes straight to the bed. Oh, I have a plan for tonight. I have visions. I'm spiritually leading. We have devotions tonight. And so this actually is funny, but this caused a lot of tension early on in our marriage. Because I was motivated to start our family tradition of having dinners together, meaningful conversations. But what I did not understand at that time was what her life actually looked like. She had mental limits because of how demanding her 36-hour shift was. She was emotionally drained because she had always to take care of the emotions of the patient. Every patient is in an emergency. Physically, she was drained. 36 hours, no sleep, no food. No CR sometimes. And so... I do not take into account that understanding of her whole context. What limits would she have? What expectations should I have? What does that mean for how, should I, how I should lead her? So my leadership exposed in me, my tensions, my demands of her exposed in me that I loved the picture of my marriage more than I loved her. We should be like this. Why aren't we like this? Lagi ka kasi pagod. Lagi ka kasi nako kasi. But first Peter is telling us, no, start here first. How is your wife? Where is she? Do you understand what she's going through? Do you understand where she is mentally? Do you understand what she's going through emotionally? Where her physical limits? Alam mo, pag 8 o'clock, antok na yan. Tapos schedule ka ng devotion ng 9 p.m. Tapos nagugulat ka. Bakit hindi siya nakikinig? Understand your wife. Morning person, night person, love language. Do you understand? Live with her in an understanding way. And from that understanding, craft your vision for your family. If my wife is constantly tired on a 36-hour duty, I, would, I should not schedule a date on that 36-hour duty dinner. Maybe the next day. That involves a lot of understanding. That involves honoring her weaknesses. It's actually very loving. Without abandoning your spiritual leadership, you are becoming more loving. It doesn't mean that, okay, wala nang plans, I'll just do whatever she wants. Sleep, okay, sleep. Uh, rest, okay, rest. Shopping, okay, shopping. That's not what God is saying. It says, okay, you want to lead your family, but start from understanding and then follow through. Based on who she is, what she can and cannot do, how can I lead her? Where can I come in? That's what I'm learning. I would not pretend to say that this is easy. This is very, very challenging. Husbands have work. Husbands have personal uh, responsibilities, personal worries. And on top of that, when you get home, you're still understanding someone else. What kind of husband would be able to do this? A husband who has their minds girded up 
prepared for action because you know that you need to set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you on the day of Jesus Christ. If Christ does not inform your present intentions and present motivations, you cannot do this. It will be so tiring. But if Christ has so commanded this and you are willing to suffer for doing good because it is precious in God's sight, then each difficult dinner date scheduling with understanding and grace and patience is counted in the eyes of your father. That can keep you going. So being mindful of God. So today we discuss three things. A wife's conduct, a wife's beauty, and a husband's honor. But all of this should be founded on our freedom as servants. We have found and have been given freedom from Christ, from our own desires, from our own instincts, what feels good to us. But where will you channel that freedom? Will you channel it to serve the good of the master, the design of the master, to entrust yourself to him? Or will you continue to use your freedom to satisfy yourself? It's a question of trust. Will you submit your life trusting the design of the master even when it costs you suffering? This is our identity. Once we were not a people, but now we are. We are God's people. Once we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. So live as people who are free, living as servants of God. At this point, I'll give you a minute to speak to God directly. Put your consciousness and your awareness and your attention to him and what he wants to tell you. Ask him, Lord, what are you telling me today? Let's do that. <laughs> 